to this episode of Ho in the Know. I am, uh, you know what, spiraling downward uh, as we reach the end of 2020, (laughs) Selena. (laughs) And my co-host is Corey. What are you today, Corey? Um, I'm uh, a brand new person now that I'm 24. (laughs) Corey. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yes so okay i should we should have mentioned this last week but Corey does not toot their own horn but Corey had a birthday uh this past week they turned 24 yes. and uh you know i could not be more happier that uh you're alive Corey. i'm really happy that you're still on this planet and with oh, me <laughs> thank you <laughs> anyway, we are joined today uh, by Feminista, and uh, she's going to talk to us about all kinds of amazing things. However, before we begin every episode, we begin with a segment we call Historical Hoes. And this week's Historical Ho is Ching Shi. I got my info from Atlas Obscura and some wiki and uh, yeah, so I will share all of those links in the description. So Ching Shi was born Shi Hyang in 1775 in Guangdong province. She was a full or a Cantonese full service sex worker named Shi Hyang Ku who worked in a floating brothel in Guangzhou. In 1801, she married her husband Cheng the, I think the first, uh, who was the commander of the Red Flag Fleet of Pirate Ships. The story goes that Cheng sought his bride out due to her reputation as a shrewd businesswoman and that she agreed on the condition that she had equal control of the pirate fleet. Ching Shi then used the secrets she learned as a sex worker to wield power over her wealthy and politically connected clients. She fully engaged in her husband's piracy until his death six years into their marriage. His death left her in a precarious position. Her husband's adoptive son, Cheng Po Tsai, was originally the one to inherit control of the Red Flag fleet. Cheng Po Tsai, however, was more than just Ching Shi's stepson. The young fisherman had also been her husband's lover. It was an adult adoption creating a kinship basis for further interaction, particularly of a business or discipleship sort. Within weeks of Cheng the First's death, the pirate now known as Cheng Shi, meaning Cheng's widow, uh, had taken Chiu Po or Cheng Po as her lover, eventually solidifying the relationship through marriage, maneuvering herself back into power and obtaining leadership over the Red Flag Fleet. As a woman in command of a huge pirate fleet, Ching Shi had her work cut out for her. Quote, pirate vessels often had few women on board, but it is not clear to what extent they were or were not practicing pirates, says Murray, uh, author Murray of this article. Unlike in the West, the in South China, uh, there was no stigma attached to women being on board a ship or being bad luck for the ship. Nevertheless, it wouldn't have been easy for anyone, much less a pirate's widow, to control uh, 100, or sorry, 1,800 pirate ships and 80,000 pirates. In comparison, the 19th century pirate Blackbeard commanded four ships and 300 pirates. So it's like hardly any pirates and hardly any ships. Ching Shi unified her enormous fleet of pirates using a code of laws. The code was strict and stated that any pirate giving his own orders of or disobeying those of a superior was to be beheaded on the spot. The code was particularly unusual in its laws regarding female captives. If a pirate uh, assaulted a female captive, he would be put to death. If the sex between the two was consensual, both would be put to death. Uh, the Red Flag Fleet was under Ching Shi's rule. Um, sorry, the Red Flag Fleet, under Ching Shi's rule, went undefeated. Despite attempts by Qing Dynasty officials, the Portuguese Navy, and the East Indian Trading Company to vanquish it. After three years of notoriety, Ching Shi retired in 1810 by accepting an offer of amnesty from the Chinese government. What seems to have led to her surrender was a highly destructive conflict between the Black and Red Fleets and their leaders, which first led to the surrender of the Black Flag Fleet, and then ultimately to the Red Flag Fleet. Ching Shi died in 1844 at the age of 69, which is very old for that 
time period, 1844, 69, very old. While nothing is known about the years she spent following her retirement, one can only hope she spent her last days in peace and anonymity, away from the harrowing life on the seas where she made her name. And that is the really dope story of a pirate sex worker, Ching Shi, this week's historical hoe. Amazing. <laughs> I, I love starting um, off with a bang. Yes. <laughs> bang, bang, as pirates say. No, that's not what pirates say. No, they say like R. And we beauty. definitely need more pirate lore. I think so. Mm. <laughs> The world, the world needs more stories about pirates. We just do. And this one happens to be amazing. So that was awesome. I'm like, why isn't this a movie? Too? So I think I want to officially call this Corey's Corner. <laughs> I have another Corey's Corner where I shout into the podcast land about something. <laughs> so to sort of follow up on last week's episode, Cyber Girl Clown Show put out uh, an apology? I don't know. Yes. Put out sort of an apology, a community update about their partnership with Dolls Kill. And I feel a sort of way about it. <laughs> um, so basically it like outlined um, what the relationship was, um, and what they were getting from Dolls Kill and that they no longer are in partnership with them. Um, but my big issue with everything that they said was that they didn't really follow up with any sort of like action items as far as like what they're gonna do next to sort of take accountability for what they did. And I think that's where I am with all of it. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's tricky, and like I'm just I don't know, like as a friend of people in the Cyber Clown Girls show, and as somebody who performs with the Clown Girls, I'm glad that they discontinued their partnership. I understand that it's like important to kind of like take the money and distribute it in like you know places that are ethical, but it's still it's still like you know. Shoddy wasn't held accountable for like anything and I think she still refuses to like enter into like, a public chat with uh, black creators or anything about like the way that she stole designs or their politics around the police surrounding uh, the Dolls Kill shop and stuff like that during the uprisings and I mean, you know, it, it's it's just like the bug that is uh, corporate sponsorship, you know, there's it's hardly there's no way to get out you know, unscathed whenever you're surviving under capitalism. Right. <laughs> um, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, anyway, we shall see. And, uh, yeah, we still have not been directly approached by Dolls Kill, so we don't actually have to make that decision. And uh, thankful for that in some, <laughs> to some yes. degree. But I want to kind of... In some of, way. Yeah. Definitely. <laughs> I want to um, jump into our questions um, for Feminista. Um, so you have like done the incredible thing, which is transitioning from uh, working a full-time social work position to like making all of your really incredible works that you've like done um, speaking and writing like your full-time job. Um, and you... Uh, I mean, you had, uh, what is it, Reclaiming uh, Our Spaces, or Reclaiming Our Space, um, you know, debut, and it was in, it's been an incredible hit, and it's really, like, you know, opened up a lot of things for black creators, and um, so I just, I, I want to start by, you know, talking about how it feels to, like, have that ability now to be able to, like, focus on your craft entirely. Um, I think that's a Great question. First of all, thank you for having me on. Um, I am always, always, always very much interested in what young people like yourselves are doing and what you're trying to contribute to the world. And I love it. I love to see the the, the, the movement kind of going forward because I think we all play a role in uh, this pathway to liberation for our people. 
And I think shows like this are a part of that. Um, I, you know, I got to say, so I've been, I've been for a long time, I was juggling both. Um, I was, uh, my last position that I was doing was actually like a very high level administrative position. And I think halfway through my social work career, I realized that administration was really where the power was because uh, particularly as a, a black woman, right, as African woman in America, understanding that social work really was this kind of pet side project for white liberal women to feel good about themselves, you really see how that plays out in the work that we were doing and in the field. And I was just like, how am I out here engaging and in working and wanting to help and liberate my people, but the program design is coming from these white people. Like they have no idea what we're doing. So I decided to move towards administration so that I could actually be one of the people to do some programmatic and administrative design. Because if we're working in communities, somebody who's from these communities should be represented, right? So I was doing that for a while, but at the same time, I was writing and speaking. I was doing these things that I love. I've always been a multitasking kind of person. I've always been a woman of multiple trades. Um, and you know, when they say jack of all trades, master of none, that does not apply to me. I am actually really <laughs> damn good at everything that I do um, because I have a passion for these things, right? And so when you have a passion, you make time and energy and space for that. So. It isn't that I stopped being a social worker and then I was like, well, hey, let me go write some things or let me go whatever. No, there was about a good five year period where I was overlapping, where they overlapped and I was doing both the professional writing. I had like my own column with a magazine. I was editor at another online platform. Um, I was doing that. I was starting to do like speaking engagements. All of that was happening while I was still maintaining full-time positions in social work administration. Um, and I say that because a lot of young people talk about grind culture and hustling and things like that. And they, they, they see folks like me on social media and they want to be like that, right? But they don't realize that a whole lot of work went into that. A lot of sleepless nights, a lot of travel, a lot of sacrifice. Yeah, I think I saw it. So when I did uh, walk. Oh, sorry. I think I saw like on your page that you'd been at it for like 13 years prior to this moment, right? Yeah, I've been I've been doing this for a for a long time. And um, so when I did leave social work administration and I was like, okay, I'm just going to do this. I had already positioned myself to be able to do that. I had the financial resources to be able to do so. I had, you know, just the general wherewithal to be able to do that. Excuse me. So um, I kind of it was definitely had a leap of faith in it. Right. Because, you know, with the economy, especially kind of quitting a very stable full-time position with benefits in the Trump years. Uh, on the paper, that didn't make a lot of sense. Um, but again, I fully believe in myself. And I think I'm pretty damn good at everything that I do. So I took the leap and decided that that was what I was going to do. And I talk openly about it because there's so many people that kind of are looking for inspiration and whether or not they want to do something. And any, as many people as I can unplug from this cog and from this matrix, I'm trying to help. Because it's nonsense, right? This idea that you have to go, you have to work nine to five, you have to work 40 hours a week in order to be able to make money so that you can eat. Like, you know what I mean? I, we, we're poisons into this. So I'm hoping that I can be an example of what it, what it means when you care and you're passionate about something enough that you can just take the leap of faith and jump into it and not be... And I guess the only word I can think of right now is enslaved to capitalism, right? And the labor and the, what they demand of us. Yeah. I mean, well, there's hardly a subject that you have, like, not spoken about, uh, whether it be, like, about, you know, every current racial issue. I mean, I was, like, reading articles from... Um, you know, uh, back whenever, what was it? Was it uh, Ray Rice? I forget the um, the football player who knocked out his girlfriend in the in the elevator. Um, yes, Ray Rice. Yeah, yeah. I wrote about that in Time magazine. Yeah, yeah. I thought I was like so amazed reading that article in Time too. Like just because I don't, I don't see Time as as a magazine that really takes in any hard issues uh, to begin with. But like your article was definitely like, I mean, it was so interesting because 
you know, you had like a very layered perspective. It wasn't like clear cut or, you know, like you really broke Mm -hmm. down the racial dynamics. Um, And you do that across so many different issues from like gun culture and um, what we're here to talk about, because this is a podcast about sex work by sex workers Mm -hmm. for sex workers. And, you Mm -hmm. know, we do sometimes make Mm -hmm. exceptions. Not everybody does sex work per se. Um, but you know, you, you have some intersections with the, the world of sex and, and I want to start talking about Mm -hmm. your polyamory journey, (laughs) which seems so off the wall because Mm -hmm. you, Mm -hmm. you talk about so much, like truly, I could, I feel like I could talk to Mm -hmm. you about anything, like, (laughs) because you have had a strong opinion (laughs) about it. You have published about it and Mm -hmm. it would, it would be easy, Mm -hmm. but Polly, Mm -hmm. I want to talk about that. What? first got you into thinking about it and how did you relate to it personally? You know, what's interesting is that um, so much of my, my public persona relies on when you encountered me. So there's people that have been rocking with me for over a decade and they know the sex positive, you know, feminists that came out the blocks. Like we're going to talk about kink. We're going to talk about Polly, we're going to talk about smut. We're going to talk about all these great things, right? They know that person. And then there's the people that came later and they were came around the police brutality activism. And so that's what they know, right? And then there's the people that came because of reclaiming our space. And that's what they know. And so it's all about when you encountered me, what you know. And so I appreciate all the people that have been rocking with me, you know, uh, through, all, through it all. Like my, my column for Ebony was a sex column, right? Um, so... You know, when I think about that and, and, and how I came into the journey, I think it's all been evolution. And so much of it has been because of the work that I do, right? I, I, t- I, t- I tell people all the time, like, this is all about liberation. All this work, all this activism, all these conversations we have, whether we're writing, doing podcasts or whatever, it should be, the goal should be liberation. For wherever you position yourself at whatever intersection, you're trying to be free. And so what's the point of us doing this work if we're not growing over time? If I was the same FJ 10 years ago as I am right now, then I haven't done any growth. And so the poly stuff for me really came out of me, I guess one personal experiences, always feeling like, no, this does not feel right. <laughs> when I mean this singular relationship does not feel right, does not sit right with my spirit. It is not what I think the ancestors want for me, <laughs> you know, like it's, it was really like there's nothing about this feels right. But then you still have that kind of colonization, right? Like we always everybody talks about decolonizing. That is a process of when you're shedding so many of these things that you have taught are normal or right or what you're supposed to do. And so that can take years for some people. Like when I when I see young people like yourself, I'm like, you all have a benefit of growing up at a time where even though discrimination and bias and oppression still exist, the opportunities you all have are more than anything we could have ever imagined when I was young. The fact that you can even have this podcast is something that folks from my generation when I was your age could never have fathomed. So that's beautiful, right? That means that the work that people have been doing has, has gotten you know to, to a place where it is. And I feel like your listeners need to understand we could not always do this and we could not always be open about who we really were inside. And so when you talk about asking me about that journey, how I got there, so much of the of kind of, I guess, existing in the closet, being quiet, silencing, denying, fighting against, that's the story of the journey, right? And so it took a very long time for me to publish publicly be like, yeah, this is who I am. I am not monogamous. I believe in non-monogamy. I believe, I support the poly community. You know, it was easier for me to actually talk about kink and BDSM than it was about that. Okay. So I was doing that work. I was, and, and then finding community was super important, right? That's another thing that the younger generation has. You have access to these communities and these kinds of safe spaces, mostly digital, where you can go and talk to other people and feel less alone. We didn't have that stuff coming up. And a lot of times when you feel isolated, you feel like you're wrong. But when you have a hundred other people saying, no, I feel the same way, you feel less wrong. Um, So for me, it was really about doing this kind of work, becoming a sex positive advocate, really learning from other people, um, a lot of like 
participation in, in group conversations, conferences, um, being online in these online digital spaces, learning from others to get to the point where I was like, yes, this is who I am. This is what I'm about. And I'm going to fight for the rights of, you know, people who identify this way. Um, so I know that was a voices? really long-winded answer, no, no, but it's good. I think it's, it's important. Good. I think it's important when we talk about journeys, right? Yeah. Who were the voices that like informed your informed your personal investigation into this? So I think that um, let me think. Oh goodness. Um, became friends with uh, my friend uh, Camilla, who is uh, an adult, form, a retired adult actress named uh, Cinnamon Love. Oh, Cinnamon! Um, you know, I love Cinnamon. Just kind of looking at the trajectory. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. She's she's a friend of mine now, and and just kind of looking at the trajectory of her career and her own transitions. Um, I think being within the kink community really was kind of my entryway and in, into um, polyamory and kind of thinking about folks within that lifestyle i don't know how familiar your listeners are with kink folks um but like i, I don't know like i don't, also I don't like to i'm not big on dropping people's names in the kink community just because you know of all of our consent and discretion and stuff like that but i will say this there's people that are in, within the bdsm and kink community particularly black kinksters and black bdsm folks who have really kind of opened my mind about some things i guess i you know i could say king noir and just said and jasmine um you know oh, they're yeah, really I love cool noir and jasmine. Um, i think yeah yeah they're they're super dope um i think writing the column for ebony magazine and you know, be getting more into research because I don't like to pull stuff out of my butt. I like to have well-informed research pieces, um, learning more through there. Um, who else? I don't, know. I don't know. A lot of it is is a lot of self-discovery. Um, but again, just kind of being in community with people who I felt, uh, oh, you know, the folks from uh, Black Poly Pride, um, Shanae, Sheree, you know, um, they they're doing Ruby at a uh, black at Poly Dallas Millennium, you know, uh, the folks from Sex Down South, you know what I mean? Like people who are really taking this kind of academic approach to our behaviors. Um, Sister Lex, uh, the sex uh, sex uh, counselor therapist, um, I actually met her through one of my ex partners. She's uh, really brilliant, doing great work out there. Um, you think of, you know, these are folks who really uh inspire me on a daily basis a fat sex therapist right just to kind of think outside of where my mind was boxed and those are folks that i can name because they publicly do that work so i feel comfortable kind of naming them what do you feel like um your more mainstream audience the people that don't know about your kinkiness or your polyness when they come into mm -hmm. contact with them how do you feel like what their reaction is you know what? That's a great question because I don't hide any of that. Um, like I've always been sexually explicit. <laughs> um, so I think people are kind of like used to that. I do think that some people will follow me based off something that goes viral and then they'll learn, wow, she's multifaceted. And I always tell people like, you just gotta be quiet and kind of listen and learn that I am not a fact portal. I am not someone here to just educate you about whatever social justice thing you think I'm supposed to be educating you about, that I am going to talk about all of these things. And it's funny because um, one of my partners, I just recently connected with his sister on social media and I was thinking to myself like, oh my gosh, like his sister follows me, like what's she gonna think and blah, blah, blah. But I'm like, you know what, you're almost 42 years old. Um, she's following you. So whatever she sees, she's agreeing to consume. You know what I'm saying? And I did have that moment. I just want people to know, like you can still have that, ah, what if, I don't know what they're gonna think. Because you, you just don't know, like it's hard, right? Um, so when people come at me or whatever, um, I usually don't pay much make much attention because there's always going to be somebody who doesn't like what you're about. And that, I've learned that from day one. They hate that you say abolish the police, so they're going to be mad about that. They hate that you, you know, identify as pansexual. They're like, well, what is that? You know, they're, gonna, they're not going to like that. They hate that you're fat, so they're going to be mad about you talking about being fat. There's always going to be something that people are going to be against. So I don't, I don't care too much about that. I think most of what 
I've encountered have people have been curious and they want to hear from someone like me because they're used to white people talking about sex, especially like white feminist women talking about sex work or a poly or kink or whatever. So they're actually happy to have a strong African black voice in, you know, it's kind of speaking up because maybe they've been curious, but they haven't connected with people who look like them or who are like them to kind of get our perspective on things. So I get more of that. I get more of the curiosity. Um, and I ignore cisgender men when they talk about stuff. Like I just do. If they, if, unless they're asking me, you know, FJ or if they're like really coming at me, I run this um, clubhouse and I don't know for people that are familiar with the new platform clubhouse. Um, I run a thing called the kinky clubhouse. And I and I have I also have a twenty first black twenty uh, first century black feminist um, clubhouse and I was like white people and men can't talk <laughs> because you need to learn and we need to have this space and so I I had a brother come on he was just like you know if, if I get out of line let me know I just want to ask blah 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 so I like that they kind of come with some humility and kind of like all right we're here to learn we're not going to talk over we know our place. You know, there's something, there's something kind of sexy about that too. You know what I mean? Uh, but that's another podcast. That's a whole other conversation. <laughs> I think it is interesting that you're saying. I mean, you know, like your voice is really important within the poly scene because it it does tend to be like dominated by like white people. Like most of the the books that I read about poly, like whenever I was first starting to get into stuff like Ethical Slut and Sex at, Sex at Dawn and stuff like that, like, you know, it tends to be like white mm-hmm. authors and we tend to see it like acted out with white people. Um, how do you feel like, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. What what do you feel is the difference in like how it's presented and how the community reacts like within the black community versus like I guess white people? There's always going to be that reaction of oh that's just what white people do or y'all doing that white people stuff. There's always going to be that, and that is because our people have been so miseducated um, into believing our own inferiority and subservience that when we feel restricted. And we don't feel like we're free to explore things. We just kind of chalk it off as just white people shit. And that's not cool, right? So there's a there's a bit of a, a psychological liberation that needs to happen where uh, black people accept that we're allowed to do anything that we want, right? And that there isn't anything out here that we can't do or that is specifically reserved for white people. But I do think that as we think about how the mainstream presents any aspect of any type of culture, of any type of behavior, they're gonna put white people first, you know, first and fun, and, 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 and I should say uh, foremost, right? And so that's what we are gonna receive. We're gonna see them first all the time. We have to go jump over a lot of hurdles. We have to fight through so much just to even be represented in these spaces. And that's really how I came into this, like early on as a sex positive feminist. I was like, well, sex positivity came around, especially got strong in the 80s as a a subset of, you know, feminism. But all the faces were white. And I was just kind of like, well, black people especially have a claim to sex positive feminism and we should be asserting it because we're the ones who for centuries have not been able to control our own bodies right so if anybody needs sex positive sex positivity it's us and so i wanted to be a black face in that space and i wanted to do that and when i early when it was early 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 we're talking 2009 2010 or whatever um i got a lot of pushback from our own people who were just like, well, that's not what feminism is. And you're taking that too far. And why are we trying to advocate for hoes and all this other stuff? (laughs) But now, now those same people, those same people are the ones taking the stuff that I said 10 years ago and now saying ho is life and there's no such thing as hoes and you can do what you want to do. I was like, well, I was saying that a decade ago and y'all was calling me a hoe. And now, now all of a sudden, this is your way of life. So you kind of know that sometimes you are ahead of the game. And sometimes you are going to say things that are going to rattle people's feathers. They're not going to be comfortable with it. And they're going to be mad at you for making them uncomfortable. But as long as you are standing in your truth about what you know to be true, then you just got to keep rocking with it until people come around. Because they will come around. If you are right, they will come around. If you are speaking the truth and standing in truth, the truth will always win, so people will always come around. I'm curious about, um, you said earlier that it was like 
almost easier for you to talk about kink than it was to talk about poly. What do you feel like about kink made it, I don't know, maybe more acceptable or like easier to breach than like the, the poly conversation? Well, because I think that the mainstream was very interested in kink, right? So if we go back to 2012-ish, 11-ish, you know, with the Fifty Shades thing, even though Fifty Shades was not a positive or accurate representation of BDSM <laughs> and kink, it was nope. mainstream. And it had all the white women on Pinterest wanting to have black weddings, right? <laughs> y'all remember that? I know y'all, y'all younger than me. I don't know. Y'all, y'all, oh, y'all, it, was, it was a <laughs> phenomenon. It was a you know, phenomenon. Back in the day, back in the day. <laughs> No, I yeah, mean, well, it touched everybody. Yeah. You remember it, right? <laughs> I mean, I'm from Oklahoma, and, and so like, it, had, it even it touched people, Oklahoma. Like, like, I had some homegirls out there, and they, I mean, mm-hmm. got it was, it was, pregnant it was young, started reading Fifty thing. Shades yes. for fun. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, so that was that was a thing, right? And so I think that that's why there was an, there was an opening. Right, same way right now, everybody's talking about anti-racism, everything, right? It's, it's, it's an opening because there's books about it, it's conversation or whatever, but the idea is not new. It's been around for decades, right? But so I think that what was happening around that time was there was a, just a mainstream interest in it. And so there was an entryway to kind of come in and be like, wait, 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 you know, one, that's not really BDSM. And there's people that can really teach you about it, but two, there's black folks involved too. So there was, there was, it was an opening, right? We didn't have, there isn't, there hasn't been a mainstream phenomenon like a film or music or something major by a big enough celebrity to give an entryway for us to be discussion, discussing polyamory. Because even I think when celebrities try to share that they are non-monogamous or whatever, it becomes more of a joke than anything serious. So mm-hmm. I think we're still kind of waiting for that entryway. We would need someone like a, like maybe Cardi B or Beyonce or something to be like, oh, by the way, we're in an open relationship or yeah. we are swingers or we are polyamorous. They would, we would need something like that for people yeah. to be like, oh, well, let's, let's learn more about this thing. So yeah, I think that the, the kink, there was just an opening and it made it easier to talk about. I feel like we almost had yeah, that with uh, definitely like most Will of the Smith representation. Jada Pinkett Smith, <laughs> almost. I feel like they were hair away. Mm. But notice how they circled back. They circled back and actually kind of presented a really toxic uh, version of it. Like we, I think there was some hope for it, but then it kind of died down when they came with the August, whatever. Like we realized, oh wait a minute. They were on the verge of divorce. They were having trouble. That's not what we want people to get the idea. We don't want people to root it in, you know, toxicity. Um, I think I think of somebody like um, Ozzy Davis and Ruby D, who were, you know, said to have had an open marriage their entire time. But you know, these people passed away before we could even dig in, into that. And these were our elders. We we just really had a, a powerful opportunity that passed. Right? Again, it's just it's not something that people are allowed to talk about you know what if jay-z and beyonce were actually polyamorous or they were ethically non-monogamous we wouldn't know because they've already crafted this narrative that he was a serial cheater for example okay like it's it's hard right so we would need somebody who has their reach far and deep into our community to come out and say well this is what we do and we're comfortable with this so here we go Hmm. What, um, if anything, do you think legally should be in place for poly people? Um, oh, yeah. Um, you know, it's funny because I, I run a group on Facebook called Poly and Black as Fuck. Um, and we, you know, we talk about that kind of stuff. I need to join. Um, <laughs> a lot of people are not. Yeah, say, come on. Come on over, baby. Come on. We are very different than a lot of these other poly groups you know what i mean it's not a meat market or no, you know, no. like we really talk about stuff it's very queer very 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 queer like we queer as fuck probably the most queer black poly group <laughs> on facebook but you know we were t- we we're really thinking about that and i realized that a lot of people are not particularly interested in the legal implications of 
you know, what's, what, what could happen for poly people. And I think that's just because we've come so used to being marginalized and disenfranchised that we've adapted to existing in this way. But for me, I, I do want um, polygamy to be the law. I want you people to be able to marry more than one person. Um, I actually am kind of fundamentally anti-marriage, um, which is why my marriage didn't last very long. But I don't, I, when it comes to like, we talk about equal rights, if one group can do this, and I feel that others should, you know? Like if white people could get married, I feel like black people should be able to get married. If heterosexual people can get married, I believe that homosexual people should be able to get married. That's how I think of it. It's like, you can't, you can't push one group out like that, right? Especially when you're talking about consenting adults, right? Safe and, and consenting adults. Um, I do want to be able to see a person being able to marry more than one person. Um, I do want to see protections when it comes to things like um, healthcare and all those kinds of things, because I've seen too many folks, uh, a sister of mine just went through this. She lost one of her partners and had no access to anything at the end of his life. <sighs> and that was so devastating for her to be so completely shut out because they did not have a legal marriage or what have you, or because the family wasn't accepting, like that, that really struck me. And I feel like we need to be able to set up more healthcare protections, more end of life type stuff, more property related stuff, right? If we're gonna, if we're gonna have to survive in this capitalist institution, then I feel like we should have the same rights as others. Um, I know, I, I just, I, I, I don't, I don't think that um, getting into a polyamorous relationship me should mean that you have to sacrifice your legal rights in terms of being able to manage those kinds of things. Um, so that's how I think about it. I think in taxes and stuff like that, well, why do, why do married couples get a tax break for being married? Because that's the social construction that the government wants. You get, you get kickbacks for living the American dream getting married, having children, buying a home. These are all things that you will get financial rewards by way of tax credits. They do not want to reward you being single and childless because you're not contributing to the American dream. They won't re reward you for being polyamorous because that is not contributing to the American dream. I want to see polyamorous people be able to deduct that tax credit on their taxes. <laughs> you know, it's stuff like that that I think, and I, I appreciate the groups that are advocating. I think up in... Uh, what is it, some Massachusetts maybe or something like that up in the Northeast, there was somewhere that passed some law recently um, recognizing polyamorous relationships as legal entities. I want to see more of that. I want to see more of that. Yeah, I totally feel that. I mean, I've been in poly relationships for the past, uh, let's say like eight years or something. <laughs> And um, I mean, it's just, you know, those like legal things really do make a lot of difference. And I mean, even just like not ha being a person who believes in marriage, like having some kind of legal contract so that I'm able to have like access in case like one of my partners has like a medical emergency and things like that. Um, I mean, like that would be incredible. Have you had to deal with any of those um, like issues around legality and your ability to visit a partner during COVID just because like, um, I mean, I've had actually both of my partners, uh, over COVID had ha have had major surgeries. And, um, of course you're not allowed to be in a hospital unless it's like absolutely 110 mm -hmm. percent necessary. So I've had to do the waiting outside of hospitals thing a couple of times. Um, have you had to deal with any of that or have you mm -hmm. had any separation with any of your partners? No, no, I have not actually have created a nice little bubble, um, in which we all function. And so that hasn't been a problem for me. Oh, cool. Okay. That's awesome. Do you live with your partners or do you have like, what is your, um, what no. are your cooperative? No, 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 <laughs> no, no. no. <laughs> what are the, do you mind if it, can that. we talk? If you're listening, don't be mad. Don't be mad. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, I, I, I actually, I mean, so I'm a mother, I'm a mother, I have a teenager, right? Mm -hmm. And, um, I'm very, I, I lived when I was married, we lived together for a couple of years or whatever. That's the most I've ever lived with anyone. That's just a personality thing. Um, 
And it's funny because, like, um, I think of one of my partners, we, ha we have a nested kind of connection without physically being nested, right? I like space. I like, I like the ability to have my own thing. Um, it's funny because we're actually like house hunting and like he's looking for his house and I'm looking for his house and I want my house to be more than 10 minutes away from him. You know, everything <laughs> like that. But it's like, so somebody had asked me, why don't you just get a house together? I was like, because I don't want to live with him. <laughs> you know, I think it's right to do that. <laughs> um, so, you know, that's not, that's not exactly where I am right now. I'm, like I said, I'm almost 42 years young and I, I just, I'm not quite there yet. Um, but that doesn't mean that I have any less love or affection for the people I'm involved with. It's just, you know, um, when it comes to stuff like that, particularly being a mom of a minor child, um, and, and not that my minor child is, 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 I'm shielding him from anything. No, I'm very open with him. He has been raised very liberally and, you know, I guess we call it liberal and progressive, but he's, he's been raised liberated. in that way. So that's not it. It's more like, <laughs> He's liberated, right? So anything that he understands, I remember when he was like four years old and we were having conversations about transgender people. And, you know, from that day, it was just like, I knew that he was going to be that kind of kid. But for me, it's more just like, um, just a personality thing and kind of what I'm rooted in. <laughs> so, <laughs> no, I don't want to live with you just yet. Maybe when I'm 60, I don't know. <laughs> Speaking of having a child and like raising a child in that sort of like, sex positive, uh, gender and, and just, uh, just identity positive sort of way. Like what did you like read up on ways in which to do that? Mm. Or did mm. you like, what was that process like for you to be able to raise your child in that way? You know, it's, it's, it all is, I, I got to give credit to his dad because his dad was, was like an adolescent health educator when I met him. And so he was already kind of doing progressive That's educational awesome. work around that, like literally talking to kindergartners about like safe, uh, you know, safe relationships and um, being, you know, the, I mean, the work that he was already doing, I knew that this was the person that I would want to have a child with. And so we were very much on the same page about raising a free child. And when I say a free child, it sounded everything like not forcing them to eat when they don't want to, uh, letting them potty train whenever they wanted, um, attachment parenting type stuff, like co-sleeping. My kid could come in my bed right now at 14 and he would not be turned away, that kind of thing. So we just agreed to that. That was always our thing. And we were like, we're not, we're not doing any kind of pointed gendering or anything. We're not doing the blue colors and all that nonsense. We just knew from the beginning that was not what we wanted. And we also, we named our child after two freedom fighters, right? Like black freedom fighters. We, we, we just always have been about liberation and we wanted to make sure that he grew up understanding that he is just divine in his his own right and that you know he has the potential to do so much for our people that we can't limit him by these like european ideas of what gender is and race and class and all that nonsense we needed him to be a free human so it wasn't necessarily that we were reading up on specific things to teach us how to do that outside maybe of you know attachment parenting but we just kind of knew like no we're going to do things different from how we were raised we're going to raise a child, you know, even though we didn't stay together, um, you know, our co-parenting um, has just always been in that agreement. We're raising a free and liberated child, period. And that's free from everything, all those limitations. So when he decided one day, it's so funny, we were taking a walk and he was just like, mom, I got to talk to you about something. I was like, what? And he was like, well, I realized that I, I'm straight mom. I like girls. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> like damn it man you know <laughs> it was a whole moment you know oh my um, god and, like, and i'll never forget when like he, he really was like yeah my, i'm a boy i know i'm a boy like it was kind of one of those things like i just kind of let him come into it right like wherever you pick it up wherever you decide whatever it's not going to come from come from your parents forcing this on you so you're just going to come into your own right but like one of his best friends like kind of came out as pansexual and it was nothing to them you know, and so Ugh. I was like, we could have never imagined that when I was younger for it to be like nothing. What a world. And yet for them, it's nothing. And so that is freedom. That is liberation. That's what we've been fighting for for centuries, that our children can just be liberated in those ways. So I think we're doing a good job. I don't know. I like to think we're doing a good job. Yeah. That's incredible. That's so beautiful. <laughs> yeah, as a damaged child, I'm like, damn, I wish my mom was like this. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. 
I mean, mommy issues. Uh, yeah, shout out to mommy issues. Corey and I, <laughs> yeah, our <laughs> childhoods of abandonment, of emotional abandonment. Yeah. Speaking right now. <laughs> uh, um, and somehow, somehow, we still found a way to be this queer. It's great. Mm-hmm. it's true I mean I think it's interesting though like you know kids given a lot of choices and freedom and, and love you know like and that they I don't know I love like seeing them growing up right now I love seeing like what Gen Z is doing Corey are you Gen Z are you a zoomer mm-hmm. yeah you're a zoomer so technically I'm a cusp so oh, I'm you're... technically a zoomer part zoomer part millennial yeah it's it's a you know best of both worlds best of both worlds (laughs) i mean it's so interesting uh just seeing the differences i mean i also see like major differences from like coastal living to like inland like oklahoma is still i mean it's a lot better than it was whenever i was a kid i mean it was like really easy and like openly bigoted and there's still plenty of easy open bigotry out there (laughs) to serve up but um it's just, I don't know, like, there's gay pride parades now, and there's LGBTQ outreach centers, and it's, like, there's, like, a pretty big queer scene. Like, that was not a thing whenever mm-hmm. I was a kid, like, looking for a community. Like, I had to search so much more, too, because I didn't have the internet. I didn't have, like, well, I mean, I had the internet, but it was, it was like, early internet days, like, and the internet was just kind of a cesspool for the most part, like aside from some really great blogs that were happening and that gave me some hope for a future, like it was like dominated by kind of like edge lords and 4chan people. I mean, so mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. you like started writing like in the time back before the internet was I mean, as regulated Mm -hmm. and as cooled down as it is now, like, how have you seen the discourse change over time? And like, how is your have you found that your work has been like more easily accepted or, you know, or do you feel like there was just always like this desire for what you were saying? Yeah, you know, it's funny because I wrote my first story when I was like six years old and I've been writing ever since. (laughs) And it's only because of, you know, these online spaces that I feel like I've even had access to the opportunities for people to actually read my stuff. Right. Um, Which you'll hear a lot of like, especially black queer women say, it's like, I don't know if anybody would have ever read my stuff were it not for the Internet. Right. So I think that uh, for me, I think what's been helpful is never losing my edge never losing that unique thing about my writing style because I've seen folks that I've come up with in this space really change their writing style and change their um, approaches to things because the money started flowing in or they've started becoming affiliated with these kinds of brands and institutions that limit their expression. And for me, I've felt the opposite way. I've felt like if you want what I'm doing, you'll come to me and accept it as it is. And if not, then I just won't work with you. Like I'm not up here, you know, chasing this money and accepting these scraps or doing willing to compromise on my own values for those kinds of things. Now, have I made some choices to participate in some things that folks have found questionable? Of course, you know, that's always gonna, that's always gonna happen. But if it feels right in my spirit and if it feels like I'm doing something that, that, that is meaningful to me, then I'm gonna do it. I have not changed a whole lot. I think I've just gotten better as a writer, right? <laughs> I think mm-hmm. that um, I've learned a lot more. Uh, I've strengthened my technical skills and I, I've learned a lot more about different styles of writing to match. I mean, you, the difference between writing a blog and then an op-ed and then a column and then, you know, all these kinds of things. I've A book, you know, novella, you know, those kinds. Of, I've learned a lot about those things. Um, but I think that even as a speaker, you know, the folks, they'll, they'll, they'll hire me for things. I'm like, I'm hoping that before you put in a request with my agent, you look through my social media and you see what I'm about. You see what I talk about. You see me talking about, you know, these these white supremacy over here, and then you see me talking about polyamory over here, and then you see me posting pictures with my guns, and I hope that you did uh, your research. Because <laughs> if you hire me, that's what you're going to get. And I'm not changing who I am just because you are writing the check. I don't need your money. I can get money. I can hustle. And I, that's whatever. It's true. I got a very, very, very moist mouth. I will never be without money. 
ever. So if you're offering money and thinking that that's going to change me, understand that I could be actually getting paid for something I truly enjoy. So fuck you. <laughs> you know? So, and I don't say that as a minimized way. It's like, it's not that. It's like, I'm so pro. I'm like, listen, don't ever threaten me with a good time. Because <laughs> uh, your money ain't that important. I'm always going to be able to take care of me and my child. You know, so that's how I guess I, I guess I can lead with that. Right. Again, when I divested from that nine to five cog, when I divested from, you know, being this laborer that they wanted me to be, I was like, look, I'm going to hustle. I'm going to have different ways to, to get what I need in order to not just survive, but live well in this world. So you telling me, well, we're, we're not going to hire you because you said X, Y, Z on Twitter. I'm like, that's nice. I bet you I'll find a motherfucker that'll put some money in my cash app, though. So what you doing? You ain't saying nothing but a word, bro. <laughs> you know, so that's how I think about it. Are you anxious? Do you want to be anxious? Do you want the exhilaration of insecurity and existential dread coursing through your veins? Do you want to feel like you're in a thriller where if you don't send that email, a supervillain will blow up the entire Google Cloud Center? There's nothing like waking up dripping with fear sweat or attempting to fall asleep only to have your thoughts race ahead of you. Maybe instead of cooling down, it's time to ramp it up. Why downshift when you can gun it, riding the highway of heightened living with anxiety? If you can't take it, then maybe don't be anxious. Well, we're coming upon our time, um, and I don't want to take any more of your absolutely incredibly precious time. Um, so where can we find you, and do you have anything you want to plug? Sure, sure. Um, so the latest big project that I've been working on is a podcast called Black Girl Missing, and it is a true, true crime podcast, the only one of its kind, and that focuses specifically on stories of Black girls under the age of 18 who have gone missing in the United States. And I do that with my two sisters, and it's really great. We just, we just wrapped up uh, season two uh, a couple of months ago, so we have two full seasons of it. You can check it out wherever you find your podcast. That's really important to me. You can follow me, Clemenisa Jones. I'm pretty much everywhere. It's the same name. Um, you know, I'm constantly uh, writing things. You can, I have a Patreon, you know, patreon.com slash Clemenisa Jones. You can subscribe to that. That's where I put a lot of my, the writing that people used to get for free and access to or whatever, I put a lot of that there um, because if I'm producing this content, you know, if you find it valuable, you'll, you'll pay for it. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and that's, that's pretty much what I'm doing. Like I pulled back a lot. Again, I am a PhD student. I am focusing a lot on my studies and getting, you know, this work done. So I have pulled back somewhat, but I am still speaking. Um, if you follow me on socials, I usually advertise my speaking engagements, many of which are open to the public. So feel free to uh, register and hear what I got to say. Amazing. I can't wait to call you Dr. Feminista Wonderful. Jones. <laughs> thank you, you so much. Thank you. Thank you. You can Sorry. find me at the goddess Corey on Instagram, on Twitter. I have a link tree. You can click the links. Awesome. I'm Selena the Stripper. You can find me on Instagram at Pretty Boy Girl. You can support my Patreon at The Real Pretty Boy Girl, where I post stories, conversations with clients, my uh, all of my adventures buying sex work and selling sex work. Uh, it's all there. Please support me. And then uh, you can follow the podcast on Instagram at How in the Know, spelled Hukes in the Nukes. If you don't know how to spell it at this point. Again, every time, amazed. I, I don't know how you made it here, but uh, thank you for being here. And uh, that's it. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Home in the Know. Have a lovely December, a lovely end to this uh, real terror hellscape of a year. Um, and uh, we'll be back next week with a mini-sode. <laughs> So have a great one. Bye guys. More money, I want your money, I want more money. 